0: We're all familiar with sibling rivalries, aren't we? I mean, most of the time they're all in good fun, where a brother or a sister, you're just able to kind of push each other towards something better when the competitive juices start flowing. You know, I remember teaching Emma how to ride a bike and it seemed like it took forever, but as soon as she learned how, well, Brie learned like practically the next day because she was bound and determined to keep up with her older sister. But sometimes those sibling rivalries, it's all in good fun and kind of pushing each other to new heights, well, sometimes they can turn sour. There can be this bitterness or something that begins to take root. And usually that happens when the younger begins to outpace the older. And if there can't be forgiveness, that there can't be resolution, well, it can lead to an all-out family feud. We'll read about one of those this morning as we jump into our first of the minor prophets. We're looking at the prophet Obadiah and his message. It's primarily to the Edomites. And we read today and we're thinking, who are the Edomites and who's Obadiah and what's going on? And it gets confusing. And so this book is often misunderstood or ignored. And the fact of the matter is, we just don't know that much about Obadiah. We don't really know anything about him. Now, you might be thinking, well, I think I read about Obadiah in the Old Testament. You know, there are 12 Obadiahs mentioned in the Old Testament, and this prophet, well, he probably isn't any one of those. The name Obadiah was a popular Israelite name in those days. It means servant of the Lord. And so this prophet, he writes, and he writes concerning the Edomites, but we don't even know when he wrote he's one of two prophets that we can't really be dogmatic on the dating we know that he wrote during a time when jerusalem was being attacked and the most prominent attack was by the babylonians in the fifth century so perhaps he was a fifth century prophet But at the same time there were previous attacks by the assyrians and by the northern kingdom israel that took place in the eighth century and where the prophet is lined up with the other prophets well it kind of seems like he could be an eighth century prophet problem is we just don't know for sure we can't be dogmatic But what we do see from this prophet is that he calls people to turn away from pride, to turn away from unforgiveness and violence, and to look out for one another's good. I want you to see it this morning as we hop in to the prophet Obadiah. We're going to read the whole book, all 21 verses. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament. Let's go ahead and check it out. The Vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up! Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how have you been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman. See that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them for the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of jacob shall possess their own possessions the house of jacob shall be a fire and the house of joseph a flame and the house of esau stubble they shall burn them and consume them And there shall be no survivor from the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zepharath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who were in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's." So to make sense of all this, you need to know that about 4,000 years ago, there were two brothers who were born twins, actually. Their names were Jacob and Esau. Esau, he was just a couple minutes older than his brother Jacob, but that was important because in those days, the older brother, well, he had certain rights, he had certain privileges. He was the one who would be the next leader of the family. But with these two brothers, God had said that the older would serve the younger. And you talk about sibling rivalry, these two brothers, they did not get along. Esau, well, Esau was his dad's favorite. He was the older one and he was the, he was a manly kind of a guy. He was, he was hairy and he liked hunting and all of this. Jacob, well, he was more of a homebody, a mama's boy. When everyone else was going out to hunt, well, he was hanging back at home in the fields. This is who Jacob was. And so uh, many of you, you may be familiar with the story where one day Jacob, he's cooking some nice red stew. Meanwhile, Esau, he's out hunting and he comes back from a a long day being outside and he smells that stew. And he says to his brother, oh, Jacob, what will it take to get some of that stew and Jacob he thinks about it for a little bit and he says you know what just sell me your birthright you know you can have all this stew just for the birthright and Esau says what's a birthright to me anyway sounds good here you can have the birthright just give me that stew and so he sells his birthright for a bowl of stew Now, some years later, uh, when their father Isaac was nearly blind and almost dead on his deathbed, Jacob goes in and he approaches his father and he dresses up like Esau. He puts some hairy garments on his arms and he goes in and he deceives his father so that the father gives Jacob the blessing. He has the blessing and the birthright. And You need to understand the name Jacob, it means deceiver, trickster. That's who Jacob was. He was a a trickster. And after he takes the birthright, he takes the blessing. Well, Esau, as you can imagine, he's really upset. He's really angry. He wants Jacob dead. And so Jacob, he flees and he goes away to hang out with Uncle Laban. He hangs out there for about 20 years and then he approaches again. And as he's approaching, he's fearing that Esau is going to want him dead. And so to try to appease Esau, he's sending ahead all of these gifts to try to, you know, make sure that Esau's going to be happy with them. But Esau, Esau had already forgiven Jacob. And so when they actually do meet, Esau says to Jacob, "Brother, let's be reconciled. Let's come together. I've forgiven you. Do you want to live with me?" And Jacob says, okay. And Esau says, great, then follow me. We'll go there together. We can, we can live. This will be good. And Jacob, he's hesitant, but he says, okay. And then Esau says, all right, great. I'll lead the way. You know, just come on, tag along. And Jacob says, no, no, no. You know, I've got this big family here. I've got, I've got a big family, lots, lots of stuff. Why don't you go on ahead and we'll just kind of catch up. Esau says, okay, he goes on ahead, and as soon as Esau is out of sight, Jacob takes his family, turns the other direction, and goes the other way. Well, Esau, when he figures all this out, he's upset again because why did you deceive I'd forgiven you you know it's one thing to have been deceived once but then, and to have forgiven and then to be backstabbed again I mean Esau's thinking that little trickster I want to get him and so these are the roots of this family from Esau will come this nation Edom. They're going to settle down in a land called Edom or Sire. And it's in modern day Jordan. It's up in the red sandstone rocks. The name Esau, Edom, it means red. He sells his birthright for some red stew. He looks red. He ends up in red sandstone. The name Jacob, well, his name means trickster, deceiver. He's going to go and he's going to go up north of Edom into the land of Judah. And this is where, this is where the promised land is. But Jacob, his name is going to be changed to Israel which means strives with God. That's quite an upgrade, isn't it? Going from trickster to strives with God, but this is what takes place. Now the history of these two nations, Israel and Edom, well, it continues, and it's always on the spectrum between just unfriendly and like all out family chaos, okay? So basically, as you know, Israel ends up in Egypt when they're freed out of Egypt, and they're trying to come up and p- possess the land. They want to come up through Edom, and they ask the nation, hey, can we just come up? We'll go right through. We won't touch anything. Anything we do touch, well, we'll, we'll pay you for it. We'll make it good. And Edom says, oh no, little trickster, we know you all too well, you Israelites, you people of Jacob, there's no way you're coming through our land. And so they make them go around all the way south through the Gulf of, or around the Gulf of Aquaba, all, um, and it's, it's a big trek that he sends them on. And so they end up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years and the tensions just never go away. I mean, David, when he was king, he won some battles against Edom and made Edom his servants and there was other battles against Edom that went on, and then Edom kind of got stronger, and and was doing some battles against uh, Israel, and all of this was taking place. So as we come to the book of Obadiah, you understand there's all this drama, all this backstory that's taken place between Edom and Judah. And at this time, well, there's a lot of drama going on in Judah. As you know, the kingdom's already been torn in two. You've got the Northern Kingdom, Israel, Southern Kingdom, Judah, and right now, battles are being won against Jerusalem in Judah. Meanwhile, Edom, well, he's sitting down there to the south of Judah, and he thinks, hey, we're good. Why? Because the highest mountains in Israel are about 3,000 feet high. The highest mountains in Edom, where they were 5,000 feet high, and that's where the Edomites lived, up high in the red sandstone mountains, and they're saying to themselves, oh, look what's happening up there in Judah. Well, nothing's gonna happen like that to us. I mean, who can bring us down? We soar like the eagles in the stars we're good. You see, at the heart of Edom was pride. They thought they were something when they were nothing. They thought they were indestructible, that no one could touch them, that they were untouchable. At the heart of Edom was pride. You know, Oftentimes, we don't take pride very seriously, you know. I mean, there's certain sense. If you get into a small group or whatever, accountability group, and you're talking about what you struggle with, you just know. I mean, you're, you're probably not going to say, you know, I'm a I'm a kleptomaniac. I just tend to steal stuff all the time. Or, you know, I just have this burning rage within me. Sometimes I, j- I just want to kill somebody. I mean, you're not going to say something like that because you know. You say something like that, you're turning heads, but if you say, you know, I just struggle with pride, I mean, people kind of yawn, oh, pride, yeah, you know, that's, we all struggle with that one. You know, it's, it's one of those that we think oh, is it safe, it's a safe sin. Now, this was at the heart of Edom, and in this book, we see just how seriously God takes pride. If you were to look through the scriptures, you'd see that what pride is, is pride ultimately says, I don't need God. Pride says, "I don't need God," and pride says, "I am where I am without God." You know what pride is? Pride is ultimately prayerlessness, where you don't get up in the morning and say, "I just I need God today." It's just prayerlessness. It's just going through life thinking, "I don't need it. I don't need to talk to him." It's, it's lacking that time to prayer. The other thing pride is, it's ingratitude. It's never stopping to give thanks to God. Why? Because you ultimately thank. I did this without him i mean if you're not thanking him for what he's done what that is that expresses ingratitude and that's that those are the distinguishing characteristics of pride pride is prayerlessness and ingratitude that was edom edom was proud he was proud of his defenses proud of his standing thinking that he's untouchable proud that he was safe that he was not like judah and at the same time, all of this pride that's taking place in Edom, well, it also results in this rejoicing and celebrating over what's happening up there in Judah. Edom is gloating. Edom is cheering while Jerusalem is being ransacked. They, they heard what's happening. And what does Edom do? Well, he runs to join in. He wants to get in on the action. Edom joins in with Jerusalem's conquerors and they themselves begin to loot Jerusalem, taking the wealth out of Jerusalem, leaving nothing behind. They're standing at the crossroads and as as fugitive Israelites are just running and trying to find a way of escape, well, Edom, he knows where they're going to run to and he stands there waiting and then whistling, hey, over here, over here, we got another one trying to escape. Don't let him get away calling the conquerors to catch these Israelites. This is what Edom is doing to Israel. You know what? We can do the same thing too, can't we? It's the same way when we rush to hear just the latest juicy gossip. Oh, we want to be in the know. Tell us what's going on. What's happening with those people? It's the same way when somebody who maybe we don't like too much, bad things start to happen to them, and we think in the back of our minds, oh, that's good. They got what's coming to them. I'm glad that kind of happened. We kind of laugh to ourselves. We kind of giggle a little bit over the punishment of somebody else. Understand this. This is the message to Edom. Rejoicing over the punishment of another is wrong. Yeah, God was choosing to punish Judah. God, God knew the sins of Judah too. He knew them all too well and he was bringing punishment against him. But Edom, well, he was wrong to rejoice over the punishment of another. I want you to listen right now to the words of Psalm 137 as the psalmist kind of paints the picture of what's happening when Judah was being attacked by Babylon, just to give you an idea of what this scene might have been like. Maybe it's even the same time period, we don't know. But verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 137 reads, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How the faithful Israelites, how they loved to sing songs about their God, and now they've been captured. And so they just didn't have the emotion. They just didn't have the feeling. They just just couldn't bring themselves to sing. And so they've hung up their instruments on the trees. They've set them all down. And so what are their tormentors saying? Oh, they're, they're teasing them. They're taunting them. Oh, sing us another one of your little ditties. Yeah, sing again. Tell us about how strong your God is, how mighty he is. Sing us one of those songs. I mean, what a joke. This is what the people are saying. This is how they're taunting Judah. Don't miss verse 7. Psalm 137 verse verse 7. Hear this. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. See, the Edomites were right there. They were right there joining in the taunting with all the other captors, cheering on the Babylonians, lay it bare, lay it bare, watch it burn. They were cheerleaders at the destruction of Jerusalem. (laughs) Yeah, when Edom heard that there was a whooping going on up in Judah, well, he was first to run up and just kind of cheer it along and to even join in on the action. He was delighted to see that this nation, this rival being brought down. Oh, those tricksters, those deceivers, those people of Jacob. Oh, they've been our lords. They've been our younger brother, and we've always had to serve them, and they've had dominion over us. Oh, tear it down tear it down, right down to the ground. This is what Edom is saying. And Obadiah, well, he lets you know that God is very angry about all this. He's very angry with what's happening with what the Edomites are doing. God knew the sin of Judah. It's why he was being punished. It's why all this was taking place. But calling Edom and watching them just gloat over what's happening, well, he would not stand for that. Why? Because Edom knew the plan. E- e- Edom knew God's intention. G- Edom knew that they were supposed to serve Judah. Was, was Judah worthy of being served? No. But this was God's people. This was God's plan. This was how God was going to bring about the Messiah and bring about blessing for all nations. Edom knew this. But because of the rivalry, because of this family feud that ex- had extended through the generations, well, he sat there gloating over the demise of Jerusalem. He sat, there, he, he sat there cheering on his destruction. So Obadiah says that Edom, you did all this to a brother. Notice how personal the language gets in this section, in this book. In almost half the verses, he calls Edom Esau, and he calls Jacob Judah. See, He's he's enforcing this idea that you did this to a brother. He's reminding them you are brothers. You came from the same womb. You had the same parents. You were twins. You're supposed to look out for one another's good. You were supposed to serve your brother and instead you cheered his destruction. That's why the pronouns are masculine throughout this book because it's pointing out that these are brothers and you did this to a brother. You know it's interesting as the church We too have this family imagery. We've been adopted into a family, brothers and sisters to look out for one another's good. It's by our unity, by having this strong family that other people will recognize, oh, they love one another. They must be children of God, belonging to that family. I want to get in on that. This is the example that's supposed to be set. This was the example that Edom and Judah were supposed to set. Edom he knew that but he didn't live that and God had said Edom you're gonna serve Judah this was to be his lot. this was to be what he was supposed to do but they despised God's plan they disrupted that and so they gloated over the destruction of Judah they sat with pride in their mountaintops thinking that hey what's happening up there will never happen to us who can bring us down and so what does God do Well, he brings them down. He says, I will bring you down. You who think you can't be brought down, I will bring you down. He even tells them how he's going to do it. Verse 19, he says, the people from the Negev will possess you. You know what happened? Well, what happens later in 553 BC is the people from the Negev, that is this nomadic tribe of um, Nabataeans, these Arabic people, they come in and they have this agreement. You even see this in Obadiah. They're supposed to be friends. They had this treaty. Edom thinks, oh yeah, they're they're our partners. They're our friends. They've got our backs. Yeah, they're going to backstab them. The Nabataeans will conquer the Edomites and Edom will be no more. They will be wiped out. So, you know, we read all this and we see all this about Edom. We see all this about Judah and this ancient rivalry and now Edom's no more. And we can read this and say, well, this is all very interesting. I like the history, but what does this have to do with us today? I mean, how does this apply for us today? Well, the prophet Obadiah, he actually takes a very interesting turn to tell us, even today, exactly how this works out. In verse 15, he turns from Edom and he says that on the day of the Lord, that is on the day of judgment, while judgment is coming to Edom, yes, judgment will come to all nations, any people. Who struggle with pride any people who struggle with unforgiveness any people who struggle with violence any people like this they will get what's coming to them any 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 people who look at themselves and think hey we've got this we don't need God, we got here by ourselves. There's no need to be thankful, there's no need to pray. I mean, look at who we are. Any any people who trust in their military might or their financial savvy, any people who say, look at us, we're good. God says, to all nations, judgment is coming. Any nation who struggles with this, he says, as you have done, it will be done to you, your deeds will return on your head. Now what are nations called to? Nations are called to unite as a nation for the good of others, for the good of humanity. That's actually the role of any government, too, is to encourage good and to restrain evil. I mean this is the role of government. Edom didn't do this. By the way, no nation has done this and because of that god is coming so all nations will be judged so that there will be an end to evil the prophet isaiah says and that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our lord and his christ this is the promise why because we're called to unite together for good and evil it cannot stand And so here's what's going to happen. The last verse of Obadiah kind of alludes to this in verse 21. It says, saviors will go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. I want you to hear how the prophet Isaiah puts this in Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garment like his who treads in the wine presses? I have trod in the wine presses alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Now you may look at that and you may not like that imagery. it's just too brutal, it's just too violent, but understand, this is our Lord Jesus Christ when He comes again. The people will be saying, "Who, who is that marching out from the land of our enemies? Who, who is that coming out of the land of Edom? Why is he red?" And Jesus says, "It's I." It's I who am mighty to save. I'm stained with blood over all those I conquered. See, understand this, God will conquer his enemies. God has enemies and he will conquer them. And his enemies are not just the liars, the murderers, the adulterers. Understand this, his enemies are also the proud. Fundamentally, God is at enmity with the proud. Anyone who says, I got here, Without God, I don't need God. Anyone who is prayerless and anyone who is full of ingratitude. But by the same time, God has friends. I want you to keep reading with me. Isaiah 63, 7 through 9, it says this, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. So understand, you can be God's friend through faith in Jesus Christ, redeemed of our sin. That's what Jesus does. He is mighty to save. And he saves us so that we can come together Not in our pride, not in gloating, not in unforgiveness or violence, but that we can come together for the good of others, together with goodness. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the message from this tiny book, Obadiah. And God awaken in our hearts any sense of pride, thinking that we can do this without you or we don't need you. God, cause us to be a prayerful people, a people full of gratitude for what you've done so that we can come together, unite together for the good of others. God, we need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.